Wow, what a treat. This is such a treat. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, I, I was a little alarmed by the term referee being used to describe <laughs> my role, but there you go. Um, we will take questions all the way through this, and, and I'll be keeping my eye open for you up there. Can we, if we can lift the lights just a little bit, because it's hard to see those signs. Um, but we are going to have a bit of a chat up here first. And what I'm going to try and do is bridge between those of you who've been here for the whole afternoon and, and those of you who might have just arrived. And I wanted to start by getting the word out of the way. Um, on my way here, I phoned my 26-year-old daughter, who's out there in the audience somewhere, and I said to her, do you call yourself a feminist? because I realised that it wasn't a word that had been thrown around our household that much, and I'd never actually heard her use the word to describe herself. Her answer was, of course I do, but a lot of young women don't. They think it means man-hating and extremism. It's weird. <laughs> now, I just wanted to ask all of you, notwithstanding the fabulous people in this room, Given the pervasively negative connotations associated with the word in the broader community, is that a failure of the movement, that the word has those connotations for young women? Naomi. Um, okay. <laughs> I guess I always am interested in how the first frame around feminist discourse is always, always, always have we failed. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, always, 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 I'm not that you're intending to do this at all, but I'm just noticing that I never ever hear someone from any part of the media anywhere in the world start out by saying, well, you guys transformed society from the beginning to the end, up and down, well done. <laughs> um, uh, Is the word a problem though? Okay, fair enough. Um, yes, but... Um, the word, uh, like, every, Jew has been a problem word in the past. You know, queer has been a problem word in the past. Uh, there's a lot of dirt that's been thrown at the word feminism. That's always been true, as I said earlier in the day. If you look at women's history, um, in 1919, just when women were getting the vote in some Western countries, the word post-feminism was inaugurated because the word had been so badly backlashed. Um, so I don't think it's surprising that both through some missteps of the women's movement and through lots of negative publicity that is undeserved, the word is in bad odor, but as I said to a young woman earlier today, I'm not so hung up on the word. It's helpful to have a word like feminism be reclaimed and defined for a new generation, because if you keep trying to invent it with new language all the time, you lose institutional memory. At the same time, I'm, I would rather, as I said earlier, people behave in feminist ways than get hung up on what the name is. Okay, we'll get, we'll get to those points you made in your, in your talk earlier, a little bit later on. Clem, what do you think? Yeah, look, I I've mean, that's what the session's called, <laughs> the F word. I've always self-identified as feminist. Um, I guess I was raised in a household where that was just par for the course, um, which I think was a very lucky circumstance to be in. And I guess I'm the young, young feminist on the panel, and um, I find it very... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it falls to me to speak on behalf of my fellow youth. All young women. Um, yeah. Look, I just, I, I find it really problematic. I, nothing, I, I feel like it's really derailing and it happens so often and, and a lot of the time, like Naomi said, you know, I, I often write 
op-eds from a feminist perspective. In fact, more often than not, I do. And um, so often it's sort of couched in these negative terms in terms of what feminism has ruined for people or is feminism to blame for X, Y, Z. Um, and I wish it weren't the case. Is it a rallying point still? The word? What do you think, Jermaine? I mean, you said you prefer women's liberation. You'd like to, you'd like to reclaim that. It depends what you think has been going on. As far as I'm concerned, the women's liberation movement hasn't even begun. We're still trying to figure out what freedom might be like, what kind of institutions might work with it, what kinds of cultural values we want to retain, uh, whether femininity and femaleness are sex and or gender and sex, uh, whether it's possible to talk about fem uh, femaleness as culturally mediated or indeed created, or whether it's a real thing, whether women have more in common with each other than they have with their brothers or with their culture or with their religion. We don't know any of these things. And we also don't know why women are victimized. We don't know to what extent women adopt a victim posture. We don't know how, whether a woman who is being um, aggressive or defensive is more likely or less likely to be hurt or killed. We really have no idea. We're still groping to find our way. Why are we still groping to find our way? Because this is the last great revolution. Yay. And in the meantime, something rather dreadful has happened in our societies, which is that the revolution before last, before the last, which was the revolution of labor, appears to have founded. And we now live in a society where lots of people have no work, lots of people have zero hours contracts, lots of people are living in extreme insecurity. We, I think we've seen the labor movement completely betrayed. So, and, and as we're the mothers and sisters and, and workers ourselves, what do we do? Do we look back and say, hey, we've got to regroup here? And it used to, in the old days, my friends who were um, the workers, um, Socialist Party, for example, would say that I was wicked because I was splitting the labor movement, I was setting it against a husband against wife and so on, uh, which I thought was just wrong because so often the wives were being used to actually limit the self-definition of the worker. Um, and if you actually think about a great play like Death of a Salesman, the role of the wife is very clear there, that she is the real architect of his hopelessness and betrayal of his working class roots. So where are we? I don't know where we are, especially not in poor old Australia, which is, you know, a mine at the moment. Where, <laughs> where are we, Eliza, do you think? You know, I'm everywhere. So I, I actually was thinking about this question. I don't think much about being a feminist, and, and that's partly because of the work done on, on behalf of women by people on the stage, Yay. to be frank. And so, you know, my work is frontline work, quite, quite literally. I am a war reporter, and I face more discrimination from my editors in New York about being a woman going into war zones than I do working primarily within the Muslim world when I'm in the field. And that, to, that is a curiosity to me. I have no answers to that, but, you know... What sort of discrimination? Well, I mean, 
people frequently ask, you work in the Muslim world as a woman, isn't that especially dangerous? Here's the secret, it's easier to be a woman for a couple of reasons. First of all, most violence is, is random. And you know, I, I dress however women dress in the place that I'm in. And I, so I'll wear a veil, I'll wear a burqa, I'll, I'll wear whatever is called for to be respectful. So most violence is people coming up to the car armed, they see a woman, you, you can get away within 30 seconds, and that's really all you need. And when a senior mucky muck in the Muslim Brotherhood is talking to a journalist, they're talking to the New York Times, they're talking to the New Yorker, they're not talking to a woman or man. Um, and what kind of discrimination do I face in New York? I face a lot, two things. First of all, there's the economic reality. I, I just said this last week, last week, a, very, the really the best woman war correspondent in the world was killed, Mary Colvin. Eye patch, you know, shot while being with the Tamil Tigers and just an incredible woman. And um, so male and women too. Okay, so economically, if you send a woman, you know, in her 20s and 30s into a war zone as a magazine journalist, you've got to think, I'm training this woman who's probably going to leave the field 15 years earlier than her male counterpart. Because if she wants to have a baby, she's out of there. I mean, that's definitely true in frontline reporting. Um, now, does that justify the fact that I have editors all the time say, we were so worried about you. You know, I wore a GPS tracker for the first time a couple of weeks ago, this is the latest thing for war correspondents. They track you when you, and I realized I went to meet the security guy, Smudge, uh, who was, you know, I was with a male photographer and I was like, oh, we're fine, we're fine. And I realized that Smudge was deferring to the male photographer in order to know we were safe. And I, that was okay. I mean, did I need to argue? I just took my tracker and left. Um, but the le levels of sexism within war correspondents really happen within the media conglomerates rather than in the field. Okay. I want to pick up on something, Naomi, that you raised as the centerpiece of your um, presentation earlier today, which was the whole idea of redefining the approach to feminism that, that you outlined, and we don't want to go into all the detail of that presentation, but you talked about the need to redefine our approach to feminism in terms of an enlightenment um, that was based more around universal values than around women's values. Can you just kind of, that th they were the same thing in a yes. sense. Can you just outline what you meant by that for people who might not have heard? Sure, and I wish I had put it as eloquently as you just did, so thank you. Um, Sure, so very briefly, what I said earlier today, which I'm pretty excited about, the way that, you know, when you have a new idea that sort of seems to have some legs, you get excited, is that uh, Western feminism has three intellectual antecedents that are not that helpful. Very briefly, one of them is Victorian feminism, which stressed a kind of victim posture and a kind of angel-in-the-house mentality. Um, the other is... Uh, Marxism, which um, is great for labor organizing, but not so good for engagement with advanced democratic capitalism. And the third is existentialism, which post-war, World War II existentialism, which um, kind of stresses choice and the autonomous individualized self at the expense of connections to family, to children, to spirituality, to community, 
and that these have kind of left us with a definition of feminism, which Germaine was so brilliant earlier today. If you did not hear her, please listen to this online. Uh, you know, elucidating why this is so not only unattractive, but profoundly threatening and revolting to a lot of the rest of the world. Um, it, it posits an image of kind of what is valuable that is so kind of lonely and materialistic and um, competitive that it leads people, women, looking around and saying, Is, isn't there more? And so very briefly, I urge us to go back to Mary Wollstonecraft and the real origins of Western feminism now, you know, global feminism, because no one owns the Enlightenment, which is the Enlightenment, which is the idea of feminism is, is the foundation, because we're most of the people in the world of a universal uh, understanding of human rights and democracy, um, God-given rights to freedom. Okay, what do the rest of you think of that idea? Jermaine, what do you think of that idea? Well, <laughs> now here's a wobbly idea. Mary Wollstonecraft happened to mention in A Vindication of the Rights of Woman that there was another worrying thing out there, which was the rights of animals. And she kind of skirted past boys learning to be cruel to animals, which is a bit like men learning to be cruel to other people in the army. Same deal. They learn to torture things, and they think that that's making them more manly and so on. She was then responded to by a self-educated philosopher who wrote a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Brutes, meaning animals, which he thought was a pretty good put-down of Mary Wollstonecraft. Then along comes Peter Singer, <laughs> professor of ethics at Monash University, and he says, but of course that's absolutely right. Uh, the brutes have rights as well. So then the animals have rights as well. So then we go, oh God, what do we do now? Um, if, if cows have rights, and sheep have rights, especially in Australia, where they're probably being drowned at this very moment. Um, maybe we've been getting it all wrong. Maybe we're really all bastards and we should be annihilated. It's, it's really tough here. Okay, so the Enlightenment just... doesn't help you. The Enlightenment <laughs> gives you a whole new bunch of questions. The Enlightenment is about asking questions. It's not about believing answers. Okay. Well, it's okay, not, it's write, not write what our rulers want. Our rulers want us to shut up and believe. Exactly, but that's why it's so revolutionary, right? I mean, one of the reasons, I want to say something on this stage, because here we are. One of the reasons I've always felt out of sync with the rest of feminism, and they're always mad at me, um, <laughs> but I've always loved you. I didn't realize why fully until I wrote this piece because I think you are an Enlightenment feminist and they are Victorian feminists. <laughs> That's true. Well, I hope. What an effective way of batting it back. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay, Clem, what do you think about Naomi's? theory of, in, of, of enlightenment feminism, that that's the way forward for feminism? Look, I think it's definitely worth looking into. I just wanted to actually quickly jump back and talk about sexism in the publishing industry because I've been a freelance journal for 12 years and um, I, the reason I go by Clem is because I couldn't get published as Clementine initially. And I don't know whether that is uh, just pure coincidence or whether... You work from home. 
I work from home, and so originally I was a music critic, um, which I broke up with last year, thank God. And um, for whatever reason, Clementine Basto couldn't get a review published to save herself, so I just went, well, I'll call myself Clem. And there are still people who think I'm a man. Um, when I write on uh, feminism in the Sydney Morning Herald, people go, this Clem Basto fellow isn't blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Um, and I just, I just wanted to bring that up because sure. I suddenly just remembered that. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's really important for feminism to keep reassessing what its goals are, reassessing what its core so values are. So what do you are. think of Naomi's idea, though, of, of it being part of universal values? I mean, Naomi, you were saying that, you know, to be a feminist, you need to believe in, under your sort of umbrella of enlightenment, democracy, broader concepts. You, need, you have to embrace broader concepts. What do you think of that idea, Clem? I think it's great as long as it... it I'm always concerned when people... Not that you are doing it. I think this comes up quite a bit in, um, in conversations, cultural conversations, where they'll say, but isn't it just about human rights? And it moves it away from the issues of women's liberation. Right, but just to, to be... Super clear. I'm not oh, saying no, that. Oh no, no, you're right. not at all. But I, I and I and I think. That, but you that, think that's a danger that, that it dilutes. Would, that the would be focus my on, my concern is that is that quite often that is a, a sort of train of thought that comes up. Well, I why can't we just be humanists? You know, we're, why can't we just be the same? What about men's rights? What about okay, Eliza? Guys? I'll come to you in one sec, Jermaine. Eliza. <laughs> With, Eliza, I, you're, you're, I given think, the work you do... I think within a Muslim context, the idea of universal rights is a dangerous one that doesn't wash very well. Um, that doesn't mean that this isn't a brilliant reconception that could re-energize a, a dialogue with, within many situations. But, you know, we were listening a little bit earlier to Jermaine talking about the Muslim Brotherhood and the way it works culturally. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood came out of an organization called the Young Men's Muslim Association, which was modeled on what? The YMCA, the Young, Young Men's Christian Association. Um, so I say that just to say that some, the idea within a Muslim context in many of the places where I've worked, and that's not, there's a, an explicit rejection of the Enlightenment as not only threatening but other. And I, I don't think that's going to help feminists within an Islamic context to further their case in any way. Doesn't, doesn't mean you need to do that. Eliza, with a great deal of respect from my experience traveling in the Muslim world, which is maybe not as extensive as yours, but I've been to many, many countries in the Muslim world and lived in the Middle East for many years, I totally disagree with what you're saying. It is certainly true that maybe on a very broad level, it's not cultural currency or looked at with some suspicion, but it's my experience that in Jordan, in Egypt, in Lebanon, there are, there is a new generation, uh, the, you know, as we said earlier, the, the Arab Spring was led by young women, and they are part of a, a global kind of Facebook community which is all about you know, universalizing these ideas but of, of liberty and freedom. four out of five of the world's Muslims don't live in the Middle East. They live in Africa and they live in Asia. And as we heard earlier, what kind of revolution that's virtual can be that successful? Where are women now? They are getting, excuse me, shit on in every country within the Arab Spring. Right, absolutely. However, the language that women in, is including in Africa, in Sierra Leone, where I went to cover young women being held as sex slaves in Liberia, you know, the language they use to fight for their rights now is enlightenment language. But that's it's not a Muslim, neither of those countries are Muslim countries. 
Okay, well, <laughs> the, the, okay. I'm not sure what you're saying. What I'm saying is that I've witnessed in many, many Muslim countries the a language of rights and liberty, which is filtered through a Muslim context, but there's not an opposition there because Muslim feminists are um, very creatively working with Sharia commentary, working with the Quran to say, look, feminism is here in our own tradition, and they're blending um, a history of Islam with the ideas of the Enlightenment very effectively to make a case for raising women's status and for women's autonomy and dignity. I don't see, a, I don't see the contradiction that you see. I think the idea of universal rights is, is, in my experience, a problem of cultural imperialism perceived in, in much of the Muslim world. Now, do I think that makes the idea invaluable? Not at all. But you're telling me that you've had conversations in the Muslim world where people say, I don't like the idea of universal rights, that's a Western concept? So many times, I, I can't even, so many times. Okay. Yeah, they like the idea of no universal rights? They don't believe in the idea of universal rights. They believe that Western values called universal because they're hegemonic. But, okay, then okay, we're talking so, about two so totally different there, things. We're, I, okay. mean, I, I have to challenge this. We're talking about two totally so different things. So is there things. a common rallying point for women who are concerned about their rights, regardless of religion, regardless of their economic circumstances? You know, it, is there a common rallying point? Or do we have to accept that there are different rallying points? If you're a Western woman, you might have one set of rallying points. You know, if you're somewhere else, you have another I, set. I, I really think we have to be very precise about this, because this is a really important thing to understand. You are saying something that's very true, but that does not apply to this entire issue. You're saying something absolutely right, which is that American imperialism has been disguised as universal rights, and they get it that that's bloody propaganda. That I get, that is true, that I understand. I'm saying something completely different, that when I was interviewing Omar Shargawi, who is a filmmaker in Iran who documented the uprising, when I'm um, interviewing Iranian filmmakers, um, when I'm interviewing uh, you know, women who are uh, starting the first journalism school in Amman, um, they talk in a very authentic, persuasive way from a Muslim perspective about rights and liberty. It's not you know, merged with, uh, you know, Western imperialism. It's utterly autonomous, it's utterly credible, it's utterly authentic, and I think we do a disservice to that revolution to dismiss that or not recognize well, okay. that. Okay, can, I, can I just jump in here? No, Where's my applause? Okay. Come on. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's, one second, and then I want to hear from Jermaine, because she's been waiting okay, very the, patiently. The issue of... The, the question of... I, I totally hear what you're saying. I'm sure it within... Many situations that's true. But the idea of rights, universal rights, is language that doesn't go over so well. And within a Muslim context, frequently you hear, hear the word justice instead of rights. And that's a much more popular and universally understood term. Okay, Jermaine, can I ask you what you think about this idea of rallying points for women around the issue of their rights and around their circumstances? Do you think that... It is by nature, it has to be divided because of how different circumstances are for women from country to country, culture to culture. This is really so difficult because you have to try and think about what the concept is that binds us. For example, one of the things I talk to sixth formers about is why it is that the word fuck 
used transitively is so ruinous. <laughs> you know, get fucked means it's about as nasty as you can get. Um, if something's fucked, it's broken, throw it away, get rid of it. Um, and that would mean, that is extended to relationships with people. In other words, the very concept of the relationship is sadistic. It, and the person who's on the receiving end, regardless of whether it's a woman or a man, is a destroyed thing, is uh, a subjugated thing, is a thing that has been dominated. And this looks to me like the, the absolute crux of the problem. Um, I am going to demand that the person who fucks me does not then regard me as his thing or his victim or indeed his anything. Um, and if we're talking universal rights, that's got to be one of them, not to be defined by someone else who thinks that he has had some use of me or has destroyed me in some way. Now, what this, what this means is that you, if, for example, a man ignores your wishes and forces himself on you, you are not the person who is damaged. Absolutely not. He is the person who is damaged. So you don't say, I am going to be anonymous and I am going to tell you, I'm going to tell the law to punish you for doing this thing to me. No, you're going to stand up with your face looking right at him and saying, I'm going to put you away for however long and I'm not ashamed. You're the one who should be ashamed. If we can't, we can't rescue the semantics of this idea, then we can't get anywhere. So I, for years I've been trying to say, don't, don't you realize when you assume that the penis is a thing that can destroy you, that you are accepting a phallocentric mistake. The penis is the most vulnerable part of any man. It's the only part of a man. <laughs> it's the only part of a man that I actually know what to do with. <laughs> The rest of him is a total mystery to me. <laughs> so what, what we're actually arguing for is a complete transformation of the dynamic of the relationship between men and women, which means that you don't have a fucker and a fucky. You don't actually know until you're actually developing a relationship who is going to be up who or for how much. <laughs> That we actually have to overthrow that stereotype because that's how the stereotype that keeps us underneath. Okay, so how do you plan to overthrow that stereotype? <laughs> well, it's a bit late for me. It's 73. <laughs> <laughs> Can I jump in on this? Sure. Uh, I, I mean, Speechless. So, so right. <laughs> I, you know, but so that said, what I hear is that when women are fighting against genital mutilation in Africa and in the Middle East, and when they're fighting against bride burnings and honor killings throughout the Middle East, they are saying what you're saying. They're saying, I don't want to be an extension of X. I'm not an instrument of X. I have a self. My self has dignity. 
I just want to say that, and I think that that's a very profound common ground, even if the ways in which we express it culturally might differ. Now, you differ on this, though, because I know, Jermaine, you said earlier that you're, you've been criticised for not condemning female genital mutilation. Uh, well, I, the, the UN, not the most courageous organisation in the world, <laughs> uh, doesn't say mutilation anymore, it says cutting, but I think that's fair enough. Uh, the Western assumption, which was itself sexist, was that women in the Maghreb or wherever, Christian women in Ethiopia, um, Jewish women in Ethiopia were practicing female genital cutting, not as part of a religion, but as part of a cultural practice. Now, if you actually go into it, you discover that in many cases, the real reason for doing it is cosmetic, which sounds bizarre because you would think, why does it look any better that way than it did that way? <laughs> um, but instead, now we come back to our own culture, and we have women in California who are having injections of adipose tissue into the walls of their vagina because it's considered to be too baggy. I mean, for goodness sake. <laughs> Um, but but, there's but a, in fact, but, there's, think, but there's, a, there's a serious difference here, which yeah, I think is really except worth Except I do want to explain something, that these cultural practices are done by women to women. If you want them to stop doing it, they have got to make that decision. What has happened when foreigners have come racing in and said, stop what you're doing because it's backward or it's savage or it's whatever, is that that practice has accumulated social and cultural value. We have actually given, in the case of the Kenyans, in the case of the Mau Mau, they'd practically given up doing it. And then suddenly it was outlawed by the international authorities, and guess what? And women lined up to do it. Just as women in Australia will, uh, will wear hijab. They don't have to. What they're saying is, we are what we are, and you're going to have to wear it. Okay. And you might not like my veil, but it's not your decision. Okay, Clem, what do so you think about this? Yeah, I want to. I want to get a oh, comment from Clem first. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have to be really careful as a, as as feminists who um, access a certain level of privilege as being white Western feminists, as Naomi was saying earlier today, um, not to fall into this trap of being this superhero feminist that swoops in and solves these problems for these poor women who have no idea how bad it is for them um, that we see through this prism of of Western feminism. Um, and I suppose I sit somewhere between the two of Jermaine and Naomi in this sense. I think in cases where women have agency and it is a cultural thing that women are doing, I think it's dangerous ground for us to stomp in. But I, I, then, it, then, then, then there's also an element of no, this. No, let, and it go, let, let it go, let it go. So I'm a mom, and with all due respect, Jermaine, it's not cosmetic. They cut the clitoris off. Why do they do that? And women have several... I've just written a book about the vagina. Women have several sexual centers. One of them is the clitoris. And when they cut it, they do it because they see um, women as having inordinate sex drive, which we do when we're properly handled, yes. And so they cut one of the nerve centers off so that to, to retain, restrain women's sexual appetite. And there are, there are countries all over um, Africa where they actually... Infibulate women, close them, and then cut them open in order to have intercourse. So, no, it's not cosmetic. Yes, women do it to each other, but they do it in order to be marriageable when there are no other options. And, and the uh, thank you. And there's one, a final thing I need to say as a mom, which is if these are adult women, of course they're adult women and you have autonomy, you're making your own choices, but this is done to children of seven. And if, if, you, if you hate rape and you hate abuse, this is rape, this is abuse. I'm not saying be superwoman going in and condescending, but I think it's condescending not to say, 
I think this is not okay. I think this is abusive. Okay. I think that's respectful. I, okay, but I, there's, there's just one thing. Well, there are several aspects to that. One is that I'm not too keen on clitoris reduction operations on American newborns either. Does that happen? Yes, they do happen. Look them up. But the other thing is that when it comes to um, circumcision of women, to sub-incision, to infibulation, there are so many different kinds. Again, it's a bit like the veil. Pay attention and see what's really happening. For example, Sudanese women showing up for reversal of uh, infibulation in London the surgeon discovered that the clitoris was underneath the labia. The labia had been sewn closed over the clitoris. And that itself is also interesting because for many women, direct pressure and direct contact with the clitoris is actually off-putting. And one of the things that was happening by the infibulation was that the clitoris was being protected and the actual nature of the stimulation was changed. None of this is easy. And in fact, we now have women in America having operations to have the size of the labia minora reduced. Why do you think they're doing that? Because they think they are unsightly. All you have to do is look in any compendium of surgical procedures on women and you will see a whole set of illustrations of labia reduction operations. Okay, we're now the fact is that these operations from one side of Africa to the other occupy a whole spectrum, and they are carried out by women on women. And when I've asked men about it in places like Ethiopia, whether sex with infibulated women was better than sex with women without, they actually didn't know which was which, because they don't look, which is something else you have to consider. Okay, <laughs> I, think, I think we might move away from that particular subtopic now onto, onto some broader things. I'd like to invite any of you who have questions to hop up and, and grab those microphones. Uh, I have a couple of questions that were submitted beforehand that I'd like to throw uh, to you. One is from Anna Palmer, who says, I'm interested in the panel's observations about the pace of change. So many people think, seem to think women have arrived, and yet there's ample evidence to the contrary. What are the strongest forces that sustain patriarchy? Is it in human nature to put down other? whether it be women, minorities, people of difference. Is this primal? Is it in our DNA and hardwired into our psyches? Interesting question, I think. Who'd like to pick that up? The idea of women being other, that, that that's why they've suffered at the hands of men. Well, that's pure Simone de Beauvoir, um, which I've never found wildly helpful, because I don't mind being other. You can be the same, I'll be other. <laughs> Does anyone else want to comment on that, on that question? Um, I'm sorry. No, you go, please go ahead. Just very briefly, I, you know, this question of why do they keep doing this to us, sort of millennium after millennium, is of course very haunting, especially if you love men and you don't want to think that there's some sort of satanic flaw in them. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, I have, I, I think there's one aspect which I wouldn't say it's um, hardwired, but it's, it, it's very interesting to take on board, which I didn't realize until I did the research for the vagina book, which is that there's a very strong connection between the vagina and the brain, 
And so orgasm releases chemicals in the female brain that makes women confident and self-determining and optimistic. And so it ma it, that made patriarchy make sense to me, that all these uh, centuries of rape and you know, trauma directed at the vagina um, actually, you know, rape, it turns out, actually has a physical effect on women's tissues and on their brains, and it, it lasts. It changes their baseline autonomous nervous system levels. It traumatizes them sort of permanently on a cellular level um, or for many, many years. So I do think that women's higher sexual capacity has always been extremely threatening to men who want to not be left, and that as a consequence, traumatizing or controlling women sexually it, it, breaking the brain-vagina connection, that feedback loop of confidence, uh, has been a constant in patriarchal history. Okay, another question. Juliet. Oh, can I just say something about yep. that? Look, <laughs> it doesn't surprise... Male misogyny doesn't surprise me, and it's their problem. Our real problem is female misogyny. Mm -hmm. It's our failure to support each other. This is ours to deal with. And we have to deal with it, first of all, in here. Why do, why do I doubt other women's capacity, doubt their loyalty, doubt their stature, doubt their authority? Why is this hardwired into me? Mm. And why, therefore, as a consequence, do I also doubt myself? Mm. Why mm. do I do things that are absurdly self-destructive? Why don't I take proper care of myself? Why do I do the stupid things, the stupid self-destructive things I do? Before we can make any steps to actually get men to behave better, we have to decide to behave better to each other. And my feeling is that perhaps the great thing to be doing is to be paying men less attention. <laughs> you, you were all nodding when Jermaine was saying that, was talking about women doing that to themselves and about do, who wants to pick that up, that idea of female misogyny. I had an experience of this last week where a, after, this, after Mary Colvin died and... You know, there are very few number of... Actually, it turns out there are a lot of short women who are war correspondents. I don't know why, but <laughs> it just works that way. But there are not as many women as men. And I got into a conversation, a public conversation. You know, I was asked to have this public conversation with a young woman who's just starting out doing what I do. And I've been doing it for about 10 years. And I was very rough on her. And afterwards... It, it wasn't that public, it got edited, nothing that untoward was said, but afterwards I apologized to her and I had been doing all of those things. I had been doubting her street cred, essentially, and Because she her. was a woman or just because in general? Because I doubted my own street cred looking at Mary Colvin. And I didn't realize that till the conversation was over and I took ownership over it and I said, I'm so sorry because when I was just starting out, I promised myself I would never be one of those tough-ass bitches who was like, I've been women, and I was. Um, so I nodded because I recognized my own behavior in that, and, and I was grateful that I made, that I reached and out. where do you think that comes from, Eliza? My in own you. insecurity. No question about now it. Now then, yeah. there's another thing I want to say about women's insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, now, well, look, what I want to say is this, it's very simple. Uh, 
mothers adore their sons. No matter how klutzy they are, no matter how obviously ham-fisted they are, they adore them. <laughs> Heterosexual daughters, daughters are in love with their fathers. Their fathers are distracted. Their fathers might be close, their fathers might be too close, their fathers might be distant. It's a relationship that is keyed for failure from day one. And so girls, are, all my students work too hard. And I say, do you realize you're spinning your wheels? You know this subject, you already know too much about it. Stop working, go out, get drunk, do something, stop working! <laughs> and they say, I can't, I can't, because I'm not basically good enough. Uh, this is a real problem with us and we have to deal with it. I, but think I don't know that, how I, we I do. I think this is really interesting. I think this is really... Clem, what do you think about this whole idea of insecurity, doubting yourself, women yeah, doubting themselves? I think themselves. There's, a, there's a big part of that. And, and I think... I mean, I, I was saying earlier today, I, I'm at this kind of weird intersection where I was born just, I guess, at the end of Gen X and the beginning of Gen Y. So I'm, I'm 30 in June. And, um, and, and I see in my younger peers, so I guess the, the women who are in their early 20s, um, a, a, a kind of alarming level of internalised misogyny. And you see that a lot, I think, in, in these young women who reject feminism and who say, I'm not a feminism because 10 reasons why they actually are a feminist. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, and I think it's, it, it's, a, it's up to us to unlearn that internalised misogyny. Well, it's, it's tough. I mean, you have to... You have to have experiences like Eliza was saying, and then go, oh, that's what I just did. Or, or look back and think about some time where you had some pointless bitch fight with someone, or you were threatened by another woman um, in, in the same industry as you, which happens with me a lot, because you know, we get played off against each other, particularly in Australia. There is room for one smart feminist woman on TV. You know, I mean, I... I, I, I um, <laughs> I, I have, I have an agent, and I love them. But when I when I got um, when I got my agent, it was because people were saying, "Well, mm, I wonder who the next Miff Warhurst is." You know, can't we have two Miff right. Warhursts? Right. Uh, and uh, or just one Miss Warhurst? One would be great, and then one somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that we could sit around a long time waiting for the industry to change, waiting for society to change, waiting for other people. If we can focus on working through these things ourselves, I think that's really helpful. Okay, these people are going to get sore, sore legs from waiting. <laughs> I'm going to go... Naomi, just a quick comment from you before oh, we go to questions. Oh, super fast. Um, so, I started this... I co-founded this thing for young women to address exactly this, and what we found is the brain is very plastic and that it's socially acceptable for women to put themselves down and also to speak horribly about other women the minute their backs are turned, but it's not socially acceptable to to say, yeah, I'm pretty good at what I do, I really like what I did, or you're really great at what you did, yeah, yeah. Um, or to deal with conflict directly. So we trained them to do that, and to, we encouraged them to give each other peer support for being fabulous, and recognize that it's okay to be a star, and it actually um, made their accomplishments far exceed their peers are, and made them, made them able to be comfortable with their success. There are really interesting studies that have been done on this, on, on people applying for jobs, you know, and the men look at the list of criteria and they say, I meet, you know, 60% of or 90% of the criteria and walk in and the women go, no, no, oh no, I don't, oh no, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not good enough, basically. And, and that seems to me to be a really fundamental thing to, to try and shift, yeah? Right. Okay, let's go to some questions up there first. It's a bit of a change of subject, although, Naomi, you did mention that you're a mother. I just wanted to 
come back to universal values and some of the innate power of women, it's well known that mothers, when a child is in utero and in the first two years of its life, the quality of the mother's life has a huge determining factor on the quality of that child's life going forward. So if the mother is happy and there's a very high level of oxytocin, that oxytocin level gets set. Totally right. And respect for self is determined by the interaction. I mean, of course, there's stuff that happens after. But the basic interaction of caretaker and child, that's a politically correct term, um, so that we don't say it's only women okay, who do it. Okay, two sentences for the okay. questions. Yep. Can the panel please address this quality of womanhood, which is that we are mothers and we do have a huge effect on the world because we produce from our bodies the future generation. What, what kind of universal value can bring us all together as Muslims, as Christians, as Jews? How do we do that in the world? Okay. I have a super no. fast answer to that. When people talk about you know, f these feelings of insecurity, I'm gonna make a really socially unacceptable confession in public, which is I don't relate to that for one reason. My father raised me. He was the primary caretaker, and he was this absolutely adoring, adoring male presence. So I, my mom was very nice too, but she was, you know, <laughs> distracted. So where I'm going is, we can't completely rewire our own life experiences. I mean, I have other issues, believe me. But <laughs> we can create the next generation by love-bombing them to not have these internal uh, litanies that they're not enough. And this is, I don't think just mothers do this. There's you know, studies that show that men's biochemistry changes when they raise children. Mothers and fathers, caretakers, extended family, all important. The, you know, when we raise our children, and it goes to the universal human rights, to feel like they're, they're heard, they're loved, they're safe, they're respected, you know, the whole future changes. Okay, Eliza, why are you rolling your eyes? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, First of all, um, the idea of universal human rights, just the language is so problematic. I have trouble, I have trouble hearing it advanced because of my experience with those for whom it is not okay to use that language, right? So, so that, but the idea of, of love bombing being a solution, um, I just don't know. I mean, I had a great relationship with my father, so I'm not sure it's really about that, that this, 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 I mean, I'm in a, well, many of us are, um, I was gonna say in a career, but all of us are in career paths that are, that are hard for women and unusual. Um, Okay, a lot of the Gen X and Gen Y stuff about having children later, loving these children excessively, right? Only having one, that the children have more positive understandings of the world, that they can actually affect change. I don't know if that's really bringing about the change for young girls of, of feeling secure in a new way. So that's why I'm not sure love bombing is the answer. Okay, question number four. Um, Jermaine and uh, Naomi, thank you very much. I've been to both your talks, they're fascinating. Uh, the thing I found across them is that there was a real agreement on that it was up to the woman herself to figure out who she wanted to be and what a woman is for her. Um, and I thought, you know, one, because there was a lot of disagreement, that was a very strong shared thing. And I wanted to know if you guys agreed that that was something you both shared. And two, what framework would you allow? Because uh, I've had a lot of my friends who I've talked about this who've said, you know, that's great, that freedom's really empowering, but how in God's name are we meant to figure out what that means to be a woman if we don't have some type of objective framework to work from? 
Not quite sure about that, about what you mean by a framework to work uh, from. Well, I mean, like, say you come up from a masculine perspective where you have things that are told to you what it is to be man. If you're told that it's up to a woman to decide what it is to be a powerful woman, that's a lot more challenging. I mean, that's a lot more powerful. But if you grow up where someone says, look, this is what it is, that's easier to follow. You give someone complete freedom, that's really hard. Mm. Yeah. I mean, isn't that right out of your book, Jermaine? I mean, do, don't you say freedom is difficult or freedom is, you know, the hardest thing or something like that? Am I imagining this? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, yes, freedom is strenuous. Um, but, <laughs> but I thought it was kind of funny when you were talking about a framework and about, about guys getting a framework that tells them how to be a man because... If I'm not mistaken, there's a great deal less literature out there about how to be a man <laughs> than there is about how to be a woman. And women discover that to be feminine, they have to do all sorts of time-consuming and expensive <laughs> shit, you know? <laughs> I mean, they don't say to a man that to be a man, you have to grow hair on your chest. But they do say to be a woman, you have to remove any hairs that should suddenly <laughs> appear on any part of your body at all. Um, you've got to learn how to talk and how to walk and how to sit and how, and how also to defer. And I'm thinking about, about behaviors that I notice as a teacher. I was thinking funny about parents doing all this stuff and then they give their kids to me to teach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, was, that was quite an amusing idea. Um, but women, see women at, at my university, at Cambridge, they very quickly learn not to seem smarter than the guys because it will simply be counterproductive. They will be avoided. So they are the, one of the cleverest women I know who won the university medal in history for the first time, no woman had ever won it, uh, actually never talked to guys about anything but soccer. <laughs> And she understood it all. She understood the offside rule and all that shit. And she would clatter away about this. And it probably took as much intellectual energy as the whole 13th century. Uh, it was amazing. Clem, and what, do you, and this, do you... this is a feedback mechanism that women learn very, very early. If you're smart, keep it to yourself. Is that right, Clem? Unfortunately, I'd, um, I didn't get that memo. And... Um... <laughs> Consequently, my schooling career was uh, interesting. I, I was mostly friends with the teachers. <laughs> okay, question up number one. Recently, there have been two high-profile legal cases, uh, Gabe Watson in the US and uh, Gordon Wood in Australia, where they were acquitted of killing their partners, having previously been found guilty. Why have women been conspicuously silent about these legal decisions, which were handed down by male judges, and do these decisions sanction male violence? Big legal problems here, I mm. think, given, given that those findings have been, have been made. I really think there are big legal problems to go into, uh, well, go into that in detail. We can talk generally, uh, but, but not specifically. Some of us have talked about this. Uh, it is clear to me that the provocation defence, which says that a man who snaps after being goaded or nagged at by a woman and kills her and cuts her up into little pieces and puts her in plastic bags and distributes her around the suburbs, 
that he has suffered enough. But okay, however, I want to explain something though. What is the provocation defense works that a man who has been goaded, and in particular about his sexual performance, which is the real cruncher, um, if he then behaves in a completely insane and bestial way, it is the woman's fault. That is clearly nonsense. Nagging is not a capital crime. The, the big mistake that has been made, and I'm serious about this, is the extension of the provocation defense to cover women who kill their spouses after protracted abuse. That should never have happened. The provocation defense should have been struck down and the crimes of women who have been systematically abused and brutalized should be assessed under a completely different legal system. The provocation defense is not acceptable in any civilized country. Okay, num <laughs> number three. Um, I want to go back to the topic of female genital cutting. Really? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I have um, a feeling the panel doesn't want to go back to that. But well, it's, it's in a different context. So I want to ask the panel, and Jermaine did mention it briefly, bless her cotton socks, about female genital cutting that happens in the Western world on um, intersex babies when they're born. Um, and basically they're born ambiguous and they're, they're made to be either unambiguously male or female through surgical and hormonal techniques. And that often involves some of the same cutting that, um, that FGC is... those. That what happens in, in other countries that we that we Okay, criticize. two sentences. What's the question? So my question to the panel is why why have why have feminists condemned FGC in other countries but but not looked at the own cutting that happens in our own culture? Yeah, and okay. how can we as feminists okay. support the intersex movement? So so now now I'm gonna get cranky, with all due respect. Um, so first I'm gonna say I've got a chapter on labial surgery in my upcoming book and uh, right? But I guess I want to take this moment to say there's a bad, I'm sorry, I don't mean to aim this at you, I just want to say it to the universe. There's this not good thing we have as women where we keep assigning the role of leadership to someone else. And, you know, we're exhausted. I mean, I can't speak for you. I'm exhausted. You know, you're soon to be exhausted. I'm sure you're exhausted. You're <laughs> fighting, you know, fighting a war. Um, I'm already there. Yeah, yeah. I'm and, certainly exhausted. Yeah. And, well, where I'm going with this is that there's, I hear this all the time, Naomi, you haven't addressed this, you haven't addressed that. All of you are leaders. All of you have voices. All of you have authority. All of you have responsibilities. So you write that book. Okay, you write that book. You educate us. Okay, okay I'm going to go to another question. Um, I just wanted to ask one more question about universal rights and the enlightenment thing. And how do you, who decides what a universal right is, and how does it take into account that experiences aren't universal? Um, I know someone mentioned motherhood previously, but one thing that strikes me is that um, whether or not they choose to, only women can get pregnant and give birth, and I don't see how that cannot be covered by rights, but those rights can't be universal because they are specific to women. So who, who settles on what applies to everyone and what doesn't. So I guess I, I have to take this very quickly because I introduced the subject. And 
what I would say is um, I don't believe in anyone imposing these definitions on other entities, uh, but I do think that the definition of um, universal rights in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights of the United States, which has been uh, imitated around the world and, and used around the world by pe indigenous people and people uh, struggling for national sovereignty, um, is replicated for profound reasons and that I don't believe in specifying what the outcomes should be, but um, because that's up to every nation state, that's up to every community, that's how democracy works, uh, should work, and I, be I believe in a vision of global democracy. Um, but when you look at the Enlightenment idea of what are universal rights, they're God-given rights to autonomy, to self-determination, to equality, to justice, to dignity, um, and uh, liberty freedom of expression. Okay, question up here, yes. I wanted to pick up on Jermaine's point about the, uh, you know, the, the idea of the women's liberation movement and go back to some of the uh, point around that. One of the things that we pushed when we talked about women's liberation, and I agree with Jermaine, we've got a lot of work to do, was that the personal should become political. Unfortunately, I think the political has become almost entirely personal. So what, one of the things I want to try and go do, since we've got all of these people labelled feminists in this audience, that we actually try, and I'd love for the panel to say, how do we actually recreate a political movement where we make changes, and, how, and what can we do to start on that sort of process? Because I just think otherwise we are going backwards, and everybody having a nice orgasmic feminist experience here has to be followed through. So can we please have some follow-through from the panel? Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask Clem to follow up on that first. What do you think about that idea? I actually just wanted to make a brief comment, which, which may earn me howls of derision, but I'll say it anyway, um, and that is that some male-identifying people and trans men can have babies. I, I think it's... Um, murky territory to say that only women can do a certain thing. Thank sure, you. I, I'm sure it's in the minority, you know, it may well be in the minority, but I did just want to say that. Um, look, I think that what Naomi was saying before with the number three microphone is true. I think, I think that we do sometimes get kind of hobbled by this idea that we're waiting for somebody else to um, say something, do something, come up with this political framework. Um, I mean, I would like to see and I think there has been a real return to kind of grassroots activism in feminism. I think there's some interesting stuff happening online. Um, yeah, one of our questioners actually made that point, that, that, that older generations of, of feminists might not be aware of how much <laughs> feminism is happening online. Because they're typing with the circling two-fingered eagle technique and they can't get there. <laughs> um, oh. Oh. Uh, yeah, but I think that is true. I think there's some interesting stuff happening, particularly online. I think blogs and, um, uh, you know, I guess Facebook and, and, and other um, places on the internet are becoming interesting sites of organising. Okay, Jermaine. Actually, Eva, I... <laughs> I would like to make a very old-fashioned suggestion. And you're all going to go, what? Is she nuts? And I'm going to suggest that there is an organization which is fairly broad-based and could get broader. I think it's got 22,000 members. 
it has become extremely active on the question of coal seam gas. Mm. And that being a personal issue has become a very political issue for them. And what I would suggest is that feminists join them. <laughs> the institution I'm referring to is the Country Women's Association. <laughs> They are ripe for change. <laughs> <laughs> Eliza, what do you think about the idea of a political movement that, that, that Eva raised? Well, I'll tell you where I'm most concerned about this now. Um, I am watching, after a decade of international but American occupation of Afghanistan, and women exposed to the idea of women's rights, um, and the level of violence against Afghan women has never been higher. And it's high in the home, and it's not, it's not highest in rural homes, it's highest in uh, urban homes where women have been in a decade of workshops and seminars about their rights to no avail. Uh, so what I would really like to see taken up in a much more public way, and this is, I'm trying to write about this right now, is what is it going to mean for Afghan women for the United States to negotiate with the Taliban and after so much hot air about women's rights in Afghanistan to let women entirely down? Question oh, can, number can three. I, can I jump in with yeah, an action sure. step? So what I, what I often do, um, there's so much power in this room and so many uh, skill sets. If someone will stand up and be the person who's willing to take emails, for the movement that starts here, to and then you can meet and set your agenda, you know, step by step. Thank you. What's your name? What's your name? Say it again. Okay, we'll get we'll get the organisers connected with all of that later on. Thank you. <laughs> Eva, Eva right, will take to emails too. Number three. Yep. Uh, hi, I was asked the other day whether I considered myself a feminist and um, I was shocked that I couldn't 100% say yes, but it's because I feel that at a, as a 20-year-old, I'm just way too confused by the idea. Um, and I've been met with kind of two extremes, one being throughout my schooling that, yes, you can do whatever you want, but with the underlying rhetoric of not at the um, risk of being a homemaker and being a woman, um, and the other being, which I understand that you have been trying to dispel, that you have to hate men and you have to be anti-men. So I guess my question is, um, for my generation, how do you navigate a medium between being um, feminine and keeping your female identity and being empowered and successful? Very interesting question. Who wants to, who wants to take that up? Um, I think there's some really interesting stuff happening um, in the femme movement, um, which I guess has sprung from the femme um, community in the lesbian community, but I think um, particularly online, again, it comes back to online. I mean, I'm, I'm a freelance writer. I work from home. I'm on the internet all day in my pajamas. So <laughs> I guess that's my point of uh, contact. And, you know, that might be worth looking into. I'd also like to reiterate support for the CWA. I make jam every year at the Royal Show, and for a long time, <laughs> um, for, and this year I'll be defending my blue ribbon in Raspberry Jam for the third year running. But... <laughs> But no, but for a long time, and I think this maybe kind of plays into what you're asking, because the CWA has been traditionally seen as this very old-fashioned, you know, making lace doilies group of women, and, and 
I guess because I was involved with the Royal Show, um, you know, I, I found out that they actually do have some really interesting political ideas, which I suppose are not expressly feminist because they don't call them that. But, you know, you just need to look in their newsletter and they are saying really interesting things about domestic violence, about the environment, etc., etc. However, um, I think it's really important to, to understand that feminine is not an anti-feminist yeah. stance. Can, yeah. Can I, can I say yeah. something? Um, so, I also think that, like, there are things I wish people had said to me when I was 22, and because sometimes personal experience, you know, carries uh, weight. And I've never, I'm not sure why, but I've never felt, I've always felt that my femininity and my feminism were, were part of the same thing. And also, I want to say that as a mother and as a partner, like, love and intimate relationships, for me, they, I couldn't be a good mom, I couldn't be a good lover or a good partner or a good whatever quasi-spouse if... I weren't also a feminist, and mm -hmm. I, I think it's and 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 I'm really happy. You know, I'm I'm happy in my life, and nobody tells young women you can be a feminist and have a job and have children and have lovers or a partner and be happy. And I, I just think we should tell young women that, you know, we can be happy, right, with all these things, right? <laughs> what what do you want to say to that 20-year-old who says she's getting confusing messages about what being a feminist is? I guess I don't see the dichotomy, and again, because of the work of women sitting here on this stage, I don't see this dichotomy between the feminine and, and sort of the external world, or, you know, I, I can't be both of these things. Um, I've been trying to be all those things for a long time, and <laughs> other challenges, um, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't see that dichotomy, and I think exactly what's being set up here, be yourself. And don't worry about the labels so much. Jermaine, do you want to say something to that young woman? Yes, I do, I think. Um, <laughs> part of the pressure that's on a woman of your age is to find her special other person, uh, is to actually um, bond with somebody. And I think that can be a tremendous pressure. And I think it's really rather more important, uh, instead of becoming needy or focused on looking for that relationship, that you actually think a bit more about being challenging, being difficult, being rather... <laughs> being, because one of the things is quite clear from something as nasty as the Royal Australian Regiment website is that it's somehow the abjectness of women, their neediness to which these guys are responding. And if the women were just more difficult more ch <laughs> and, and more oppositionistic, you know, if these women were surer about who they were, being happy, the whole question about whether men can make women happy, for example, there's only one person who can make you happy, and that's you. <laughs> Number four. You yep. briefly touched on this notion of a kind of bipartisan approach to feminism. I've noticed in Australia, and more so in the US, a, a cabal of conservative, pro-life, anti-pornography women taking claim to the word feminism. How is it possible to integrate those women into a moving forward pro-woman movement, and do we want them? 
<laughs> so this is an important question, and this goes to like um, first causes. Uh, when I'm talking about feminism, and uh, I did this more fully earlier, um, I'm talking about a nonpartisan or transpartisan, I'm talking about a word like democracy, right? Within a democracy, people have the right to express their political point of view, they're empowered to do so, but democracy doesn't mean a certain agenda, right? A certain policy outcome. It's the right to engage in political activity. So that's how I'm defining feminism, that every woman and man should have the right to assert him or herself politically. Um, so then it's more accurate, I would say, to talk about left-wing feminists, green feminists, conservative feminists. When women, I've heard women talk about free market uh, feminism or about the right to bear arms and their motivation or pro-life arguments, their motivation, their reasoning is absolutely sincerely uh, about raising the status of women as they see it. And I'm not going to say that is not feminism and only my liberal kind of feminism is feminism. That said, coalitions are so critical. And what I mean is you want, you know, the feminist push to empower all women to express whatever they think is right for them politically. And then you want to build coalitions across party lines on certain issues that unite all women. Um, you know, like a majority of women will want uh, some sort of childcare arrangements or flex time or to close the wage gap or strong laws against rape and sexual assault and domestic violence. And then you'll want in a vibrant democracy for women to be at daggers drawn on issues like um, pro-choice, pro-life or, you know, guns, no guns or military, no military. And that's a vibrant democracy. And until we learn uh, to deal with the fact that not all women think like us, right, um, and accept diversity, we will never move forward as, uh, as a movement. And, and so it doesn't have to be so one So you've movement. written that you think people like Sarah Palin should be allowed to call themselves feminists, it's yeah? Not my, it's not my partisan definition of my feminism, but I categorically believe that she's motivated by an idea of raising the status of women. Now, I'm gonna disagree with her and call her all kinds of names in print, but that's democracy in action. Okay, what do the rest of you think about that, about how prescriptive the, the the term should be, you know, who it should include. I think, I think Naomi just made a great point and, and it just expanded my mind a little bit about how to talk about feminism and how inclusive, any, any sort of fundamentalism, any sort of one way anything is problematic and creates its own opposition by definition. So I think that's a great definition. Okay, Jermaine. Well, I was just trying to think of when Sarah Palin claimed to be a feminist. <laughs> Um, but I, you do I have, guess, you do have pro-choice, you do have, you know, pro-choice women, oh, sorry, you do have anti-abortion women claiming to be feminist and saying that they're feminist and arguing very strongly that case. Do you and think that, that's, that's, a, that's acceptable in the frames that yes. you see feminism? Yes, it is acceptable. Uh, the, the interesting thing about all of that, about these issues, is there's been a way of thinking about abortion as some sort of a privilege that women had somehow struggled for, um, when in fact it was probably the medico-legal establishment that wanted uh, the illegality removed for its own convenience. I don't think we marched to free uh, abortion, but we ended up with a mad rhetoric, which made it seem as if an invasive a procedure to end a pregnancy that should never have begun was somehow something we should be 
uh, glad about, that was minimized, and that itself seemed to me to be anti-feminist. If it was going to be, it is a feminist issue, it is still a feminist issue, and if, by the way, you're interested in your universal rights, you are going to have to think about the rights of the fetus, you because are. they're there. You're right, you're right, you are. And you're going to have to see that what happens in that situation is that one set of rights it's has precedence over another. Right. It's not easy, it's not pleasant, right. and we wish we could make it different. And we will eventually make it different when we get better relations between the sexes, you know? Because usually an abortion comes about after a loss of control within the terms of a relationship. Uh, somebody abrogating control and responsibility. Someone so, didn't roll over and take a condom out of a drawer. I mean, that responsibility belongs to both people. Exactly, I agree yeah. with you. But okay, <laughs> so, but the thing is this, that if somebody says she's a feminist, that will do. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to argue with her or that we're not going to burn the midnight oil trying to understand what it is that we each think. Um, it would be absurd uh, to be so prescriptive. Uh, but in the olden days, it was very much a religion. You had to do things in a certain way. It was like being a nun. Um, and I think okay. it's actually changing, at least I hope. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up. I just want to get from each of you what next. You know, what, what should be the focus next for women in terms of feminism? Naomi? Oh, God. Well, I have to say just being here that one thing I really want to have happen is some institutional memory. Like, we have these brilliant minds sitting on the stage with all of this accrued wisdom. And, you know, if history is any guide, we'll all be sort of wiped clean off the slate in 50 years. Um, and then some poor child will have to figure it out all over again. So I'd like to see um, us taking responsibility, well, you really taking responsibility, to uh, run our own media. If we don't like what's in the media, start our own zines and blogs, raise our own money for our own institutions, memorialize, you know, the great icons that we have that, you know, have all this wisdom for us, um, run our own candidates, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, change the world ourselves, but with this base to move from. Yeah. Okay, Clem. Um, I would really just like to see feminism get on with job. I mean, we can sit here, not us personally, but I think, I think somebody said something recently, I can't remember which newspaper it was, but they talked about how privileged Australia is to even be having a leadership spill, that things are not so bad if we've got the time to, to deal with that. And I think that we could spend a lot of time talking about um, what is feminism, how do we do feminism, who is and who can't do it, and I think that we need to just get out there and keep doing it. I mean, that's one of the major things I get asked as a, as a small-scale feminist commentator is usually about feminism itself. I'd rather talk about the things that it's doing, the things that need to be done and the things that have been achieved rather than the, th the failures. Eliza? So I heard a poem, the two lines, from an, a woman who can't read or write in Afghanistan a couple weeks ago, and it was, making love to an old man is like making love to a withered corn stalk blackened by fungus. <laughs> <laughs> and I am putting that out there. That woman has no last name. She can't read or write. It's an oral tradition. She was married to a man against her will at 15. We have a responsibility to at least listen to the women of Afghanistan and to not let our geopolitics close them off for another 50 years. And Jermaine. When the women of uh, 
massed outside the American Air Force Base at Greenham Common. They called themselves Women for Life on Earth. <laughs> now, life on Earth, according to Stephen Hawking, has only a thousand years to run before global warming or nuclear holocaust will make this planet uninhabitable and we will have to go and colonize outer space. Uh, speaking as a woman and a member of, as it were, the lower orders, I don't want to live anywhere but on this earth. And if that's the option, I'm not accepting it. So I want to revive women for life on earth. My apologies to those of you who still have questions. I'm afraid we are out of time. Uh, but would you please put your hands together and thank this fabulous panel.